Hello, Metro Augusta. Hello, Georgia. And hello, wherever you are. This is Janice Allen Jackson welcoming you to the February 14th, yes, the Valentine's Day edition of Local Matters, a show designed to make you a more confident voter and a more engaged citizen. As always, today's show is brought to you as a service of my consulting firm, and that is Janice Allen Jackson and Associates, where we provide services to local government and nonprofit organizations. You can learn more about me and the firm at my website, which is JaniceAllenJackson.Weebly.com. If you haven't already, we do invite you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. We don't post every episode on YouTube, but when we do, it is a special one. Also, we ask you to follow our Local Matters Podcast of Georgia Facebook page so that you get notifications of episodes. You find the links there as well as other information that we post to help you on your journey of becoming a more engaged citizen. On today's show, my guest is Mark Anthony Jenkins. He is someone who spent 26 years in the North Carolina state prison system. And our show today is geared toward helping you get a better understanding of how it is that somebody can enter prison and then come out better on the back end after that length of time. Also, as you listen to this, I think this is very helpful to you as you get prepared for this upcoming election season. We know that state senators and state representatives will be on the ballot. And those are the people who make decisions about what types of money is allocated for those services in the prisons. So while this show may be a little bit different, I know is any better way than to help inform you about what happens in prison than to talk to somebody who was there for that length of time. Thank you so much for being a part of the Local Matters family. And we look forward to you enjoying this great discussion. Ladies and gentlemen, our Local Matters family, we have a guest today with an extremely compelling story. He is Mark Anthony Jenkins, and he's a resident of the Graniteville, South Carolina area. Um, he has started a business in the area, but before he did all of that, uh, he has uh, a real life encounter uh, that he's going to share with us or series of encounters that have made him the person that he is today. And he is going to share that with us. Um, you all know more recently, I did an episode on a woman who had been homeless multiple times in her life. Uh, and she talked about the experience of homelessness growing up um, with unstable housing and then also as an adult to sort of get a first person account of what that was like and today we're getting a first person account of what it can be like to be in a prison uh, to go into the prison system so we thank him so much for being willing to share his story and his journey with us and i think it'll be insightful for all of us to get a better understanding of how people get to prison, what it's like when they're there, and what it's like on the other side once they get out. Thanks so much, Mr. Jenkins. How are you doing today? Doing great, and thank you for having me, Janice. Thank you for being willing to do this. As you told me earlier, you wouldn't do this for anybody. Just wouldn't so. do it for anybody. <laughs> 
So we really do. Our Local Matters family appreciates the trust that you had in us to, to, to talk about this. Um, before, though, we get started into the depth of the story, I always like to ask our guests to share a little bit about their background and experience so the audience can connect with you. Um, if you could just tell us um, about your upbringing how you got connected to the Augusta area and a little bit about what you're doing now. I made reference to your business, so you can talk a little bit about that too. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm the youngest. I'm one of six children, uh, four boys and two girls, uh, which one of my brothers is now deceased. I came up in a military uh, upbringing. My father was actually in the military and my mother worked for the Army and Air Force Exchange Service. Now, during the earlier part of my life, my mother and father, they separated and the kids were with my mother. So my traveling, whether it was overseas or to or, you know, in the United States, all of that was with my mother, not with my father. Um, but like I said, it was pretty much a military uh, upbringing because my mother worked for the Army and Air Force Exchange Service and her working with the Army and Air Force Exchange Service. She was transferred and deployed just as if she were a soldier to different locations. That's how I got to the Augusta area in 1978. Uh, I lived here in the Augusta area. I went to school uh, in Hepzibah High School, Hepzibah Junior High, uh, for a couple of years. And then my mother got orders to go to North Carolina. And I left and went to North Carolina in 1980. Uh, eventually, I did make it back to Augusta. We'll we'll talk about that. Uh, and what I am doing now, I am the founder and CEO of Impact Media Group. Uh, it was a company I started in 2016, a multimedia company where we do live streaming. Uh, we also uh, we build up podcast studios, photography, uh, commercials and videography, photo restoration, uh, anything dealing with media. Uh, I can pretty much cover it. Uh, so that's what I'm doing now. Uh, and my involvement in the community. I have a passion for the community, uh, the downtrodden, the homeless, uh, those coming out of prison. I try to stay involved and become a part. Okay, excellent. Um, and when we talked also as we prepare for the show, you mentioned that you are a member of a certain congregation here in the Augusta area. Yes, I attend church uh, in Grovetown, Gateway Boulevard. Uh, it's called Chosen. It's a relatively new church. We're only six years old. Uh, and my pastor is Unique, Unique Mackey, and he has a story. <laughs> so that's what attracted uh, me to that church and me to him. I'm one of the founding members of that church. Uh, but he came to my studio one day and he shared his story and I shared my story. And we, you know, we, we, we put our minds together. We put prayerful time together and uh, Chosen came out of that with a few other founding members. Okay, awesome. You know, in fact, the guest I had, I referred to uh, Shamiko Hay. Yeah. Uh, I had her on and she told me she was a member of Chosen yeah. Team. She, yeah, and she participates in the praise and worship team and all of that at one time. Yeah, I know Shamiko well. <laughs> okay, and a third person I've spoken to within the last week is Lasima Terman. Uh, oh, wow. Also, as a member of Chosen, yeah. I'm just like, I, I guess I got to find my way to Unique Mackey because. Yeah, and our, our church service is on Saturdays at six o'clock. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So, uh, in fact, somebody suggested he might be a good guest on the show. So I probably yeah. need to be trying to talk to him. If you can nail him down, he's always, yeah, he's everywhere. He, he's in high demand. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So you seem firmly rooted in the area now. Is that fair to say with business, with your church? You know, you, you're feeling pretty grounded in the Augusta, greater Augusta area right now? Yeah, with my business and with my church, but I also have a village to which, you know, I'm I'm, uh, I'm accountable. And with their support uh, and with their friendship and with their, you know, their guidance and advice, yeah, I, I feel, you know, grounded and rooted in the area. Okay, okay. But you only spent a couple years here at the beginning. You mentioned coming in around 78, leaving around 80 when you were obviously still a school uh, boy, um, what led you back here? Well, uh, I left here in 1980, went to North Carolina. Uh, unfortunately, uh, in 1982, I ended up getting in a situation that would cost me 26 years of my life uh, behind prison bars. Uh, and so when I was released, I really didn't have anywhere to go after having served 26 years in prison. What led me back is that uh, my family was here or my mother was here. She had purchased a home in Hepzibah. And so the deal was when I was released from the Department of Corrections in North Carolina, a deal was made between North Carolina and Georgia where I could be released and paroled to Hepzibah, Georgia into my mother's care. Okay. So you got back here around what year is that? I'm not. I'm not December the first, two thousand eight. I'll never forget. <laughs> I bet you won't. No, I won't. Yeah. All right. So two thousand eight, you arrived. So now you have been back a little over fifteen years. Yeah. Oh yeah. It'll be sixteen years at the end of this year. Yeah. Okay. December right. of this year. Yes, ma'am. So back in Augusta and trying real hard to be a contributing member of our community. So we certainly appreciate your efforts to do that. So let's talk some, you know, 1982. What happened in 1982? Well, I can talk about 1982, but Janice, just let me backtrack a little bit. The things that led up to 1982 and my behavior okay. in 1982. Uh, a lot of things were going on when I was actually here, 78, 79 in Georgia. And prior to that, uh, in home, I was being molested by a sister. Uh, outside the home here in Augusta, I was being molested by a choir leader in the church, uh, which she would have her way with me. And I was like about 13 or 14 then. Uh, and I mean, she talked to me and, 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 you know, she put her burdens on me as if she were talking to a daughter. Just talking to you about this now, it, it comes back to me how she would tell me that her husband, who was a Sunday school teacher, had a porn addiction. And him being addicted to porn, he would try to make her do what, you know, they were looking at in the video or on the VCRs back then. And uh, I mean, she would tell me all of this stuff. And like I said, I'm 13 or 14 years old. And that was a lot for a kid to, you know, the shoulder. But on top of that, uh, we had, you know, some surface sexual involvement. Yeah, we had surface sexual involvement. Uh, and with that going on, I had a sister who had prior to this and had continuously uh, uh, sexually molested me. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
So that led to anger. Uh, it led to anger. And yeah. I, I want to be transparent with you because a lot of people, they try to uh, sugarcoat things. And that's one thing about me. I don't have a I don't have a feel for Shay Shay, but I got my lemonade. So uh, I want to be transparent and truthful. And it did affect my relationships. It affected my relationships with my girlfriends, uh, my view of women. Uh, it affected my relationship and my belief in the church because of the things that happened in the church. And so uh, fast forward, I leave the Georgia area and I'm now in North Carolina. We moved to North Carolina in 1980. Uh, some of the same things still going on. And I also have or had a mother, very religious. I mean, I used to hear them talk about other religions as if they were a cult. But now I look back, man, they, they behave as if they were one. You know, the, the Pentecostal holiness people and very religious, uh, uh, very strict. I can remember getting beatings. Uh, and my brother and I talked about this. We would get beatings to the point where we would bleed uh, or have welts. And when we go to remove our shirts, you know, say like if we went to sleep, we go to remove our shirts, the shirts would actually be sticking to the blood or to the welts. And so I had to internalize all of this, man. And uh, at the same time, you know, the church is telling me, honor your mother, you know, <laughs> respect your mother, honor your mother. So I'm, I'm shouldering all of this. Um, uh, so many other things are going on in my life. And I'm in North Carolina. Uh, and Eventually, it came to a head uh, by me uh, meeting my next door neighbor and my next door neighbor, uh, I, I guess you would say, imitating the same things that were done to me when I was living in Georgia, uh, what was done to me by my sister. And I lashed out and I took an innocent life. And by taking that innocent life, I ended up uh, uh, in prison serving a life sentence. Uh, Thank God I ended up with a life sentence because I was tried on a death penalty. Uh, Ten jurors voted for death, two voted for life. But in order for me to be sentenced to death, the, the, the decision would have had to have been unanimous. So with the two people dissenting, I was sentenced to life in prison with a parole eligibility in 20 years. But I actually did 26 years. Okay. All right. There's so many questions that came to mind as, as you were talking about that. Um, I want to go back to the choir director in Augusta. And obviously, I'm not going to ask you to identify names or churches or anything like that. But you say you were 13, 14, and she's uh, revealing intimate details about her household and her relationship with her husband. And she is then um, inviting you into sexual activity. Yeah. I have seen on too many occasions, and I probably spent too much time reading comments on YouTube videos and that sort of thing, but um, you will see these occasions where there's an authority figure like a teacher or what have you, yeah. a female teacher who is uh, involved to some degree with a sexual relationship with a male student. And some there invariably there's somebody in the comments or multiple somebody's in the comments who say, well, if I'm 14, a 14 year old boy, I'm excited about this. I, th I think this is cool that an adult woman wants to sort of show me the rope, so to speak. What, what are they complaining about? That, that is the type of comment that, that I will often see. I've heard that too. I've heard that too. And, you know, 
in the moment you're thinking that, wow, this is what I want. You know, so I understand where those comments from the outsiders come from. Even as a 13 or 14 year old boy, uh, you know, you're thinking, okay, I'm here. And she was she was 10 years older than me. So that would put her like about 24. Mm -hmm. I remember. Yeah, specifically, she was 24 years old at this time. Uh, So you're thinking, you know, here I am. I, I do have this, but you don't understand what's being done or the damage that's being compounded on what is already occurring in your life. You know, right. you, you're not old enough to conceptualize that at 13 or 14. So that's what I would say to those people who say, wow, you know, at 14, man, shoot, I'm, you, you're not old enough to consent or conceptualize at 13 or 14 or understand the, the true dynamic of what's going on. Right. Right. Thank you for that. I just, I had to ask that yeah, question. I've heard it. So yeah, no oh, problem. I'm sure you had. Yeah. Um, so was there ever any attempt uh, to reveal this to anybody? It did come out. Uh, and here's, here's what I say about the black church. Uh, it did come out. I had a, a situation happen in the church. Um, and I had done something I was not supposed to do. It, it involved um, and like I said, I'm gonna be transparent. I was like 13 or 14 and a guy in the church, we're now friends. He's a, he's a minister and everything. Uh, he had came to church and he testified that he'd gone to Kmart and found a hundred dollar bill in the parking lot. And, you know, the devil was trying to tell him he needed to take it, but eventually he took it back in and turned it back in. So as a 13, 14 year old boy, I'm listening to this. I'm saying, shoot, he found a hundred dollars, you know, in, in Kmart parking lot and took it back in. I wonder if they still have the hundred dollars. Long story short, I had my neighbor take me up there. I claimed the hundred dollars like it was mine. Okay. And so I'm I'm young. I'm not thinking. This right. guy comes back to check and see if anybody's claimed the hundred dollars. They say, Yeah, we had a Mark Jenkins come and claim the hundred dollars. So this is the guy that's in church with me. He's saying, Oh my goodness, you know, I testified about this and Mark wouldn't claim the hundred dollars. So he went to the pastor. The pastor came and got me worked my butt off. I mean, he took me at Janice, what I tell you, he worked my, I want to say the other word, and I'm thinking he going to pay me. And he says, no, nah, I want to talk to you about something. And so when he talked to me about stealing the hundred dollars, you know, going to claim something that wasn't rightfully mine, I came out and told him what was going on with the choir director and what had happened, but nothing was done. Uh, he I, he did tell me this because I told him that, you know, she would take me in back then. I don't know if you remember the drink when it first come out, Pink Champelles. She would take me and she would just like buy a six pack of Pink Champelles and we just drink, drink, drink. And that's when we do our sexual thing. And all he said, oh, yeah, I, I do remember her like coming to church and I seemed like I smelled alcohol on her. <laughs> Never mind that she was having Never sex with a 13 year old. You know what I mean? So I did mention it. I did talk to him about it. But also let me say this to you. Years later, I found out he wasn't on the up and up. You know, I, I found out he had a side chick. So, you know, it's it was a miss. It was, you know, it was an opportunity to get into what was going on. But, you know, back then and being straight up, the African-American churches, they wasn't, you know, really, nah, uh-uh. Yeah. A lot of us still aren't, you know, unfortunately where my brain went when you mentioned that you mentioned that to, to him. And then he says that, yeah, I thought I've smelled alcohol on her. I wondered, you know, there might be some relationship between the two of them. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, but he, he had a side chick. Yeah. 
Yeah. Might have had more than one. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Could have been. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, th thanks for revealing that. And mm. I appreciate your vulnerability in just mm. letting all of this out for our I'm going to just try to be as transparent as you let me, Janice. I'm, I, I'll give you my word on that. Now, if it's something I know that I can't, I'll say, Janice, I can't answer that. Okay. All right. I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Appreciate that so much. So, and that's one of the reasons our listeners like our show, because I think we just have honest conversations with people. So the you kill the neighbor, you wind up in prison. Um, and I think as we were getting prepared, you mentioned that over that 26 year time period, you were actually in 11 different institutions. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I think sometimes people think that, you know, you stay in one prison for 20 years or whatever. Uh, that's not how it works because the, there's different classifications at each prison. You know, you have maximum custody, close custody, medium custody, and then minimum custody. I was always shuffled between uh, close custody and medium custody prior to me going home. Now, when I was preparing to come home, I was promoted to minimum custody. Mm -hmm. which, you know, prepared me to come home out into the you know, society. Uh, but yes, uh, 11 different prisons that I, I think I last counted, it was about 11 or 12, you know, somewhere around there. Uh, and some you stay at longer than others. Uh, now, some you may be forced off the, the prison camp, you know, by getting in trouble. That happened a couple of times with me. Uh, I, I got in trouble. And sort of like worn out my welcome and they sent me off. <laughs> uh, when I was sent to the farm, I, I, I don't know if you've heard me talk about the farm, which was like a, a very violent prison. That wasn't voluntarily. That was because I got in trouble at another prison and worn my welcome out. I'd masterminded something that had gone down at this prison and they couldn't like nail me down on it and, and lock me up for it. So they sent me to the farm. Uh, I stayed at the farm, you know, four years. Uh, uh, it was another correctional facility I gave like maybe eight or nine years, but it was split up, you know, and then it was like other facilities throughout that time. I'd go and stay a year. You know, you could put in a transfer request um, like, yeah. And you had the option of putting in a request if you wanted to go to another prison. Sometimes it was on it. Sometimes it wasn't. Okay. So. Sometimes they moved you because of something they didn't appreciate that you had done. And yeah. sometimes it was because you had requested to be moved. I mean, when you're making those requests, um, what what's what's a legitimate reason to ask to be transferred? Uh, okay, if you find out they have a program there, you know, um, it's like when I was at uh, the farm, I knew that they had a college degree program at Harnett Correctional. And so I put in a request saying that I wanted to go to school mm -hmm. and bam, you know, weeks later I was transferred. I was going to Harnett Correctional. And that was at the behest of a counselor I had. Uh, he just said, man, you know, Mark, you're too smart to be down here at the farm. And just, I'd gotten comfortable down there. That's where I was doing my hustling and all that other crazy stuff, drug dealing. And uh, he said, Mark, you know, this is not you, man. This was supposed to have been Janice. I I'm telling you, this is why I know that during my tenure of incarceration, God still had my back. This was considered like a redneck, tobacco-chewing, nobody-liked-him officer. He was supposed to be nasty. M.G. Little was his name. But he saw something in me, and he said, Mark, you don't need to be here, man. I've been there four years. Didn't want to transfer, Janice. I mean, 
It was just like a hell on earth type of prison place. And I'd gotten comfortable there. He says, man, you need to go get your college degree. You, you know, you can do this and you can do that. And so he finally taught me into putting in a transfer to go get my college education. Yeah. Okay. And when I did that, I was transferred like a couple of weeks out. Okay. So let's, let's talk about counselors first. Um, because I happen to know a few people, including one dear cousin of mine that was, she's retired now, but she was a counselor in uh, the federal prison system. Mm -hmm. So what do, what do counselors do all day? What services are they providing to inmates? Now, when we, when we say counselors, are we talking about programmers or are we talking about psychologists? Because we have programmers in prison. Programmers. Right now I'm talking okay. about programmers. We'll okay. get to the psychologists later. But yeah. But yeah. Programmers, uh, they're not as hands-on as could be, uh, but they do try to help direct and, um, you know, uh, recommend, you know, according to your, your case history, you know, they have access to your files mm -hmm. and they try to set up like, you know, goals and objectives for you to, you know, uh, navigate through the system. Uh, some guys take advantage of it and some don't. And when I say some don't, some just do not know how, you know, um, and let me say this to you, the average inmate, his, his reading is like on a sixth grade level. So Bad. I'm like an exception. Level, right? Yeah, I'm like an exception. You know, it was like a few more guys like me. You know, it wasn't a lot of us, but there were, you know, those of us who could read, who could, you know, articulate well. But the average inmate, no, he, you know, couldn't read. I would have to write grievances for him. I'd have to write letters home for some. Um, yeah. So they just didn't know how to take advantage of the resources. I don't want to come at them and say, oh, you know, they didn't do it. They didn't know how. They didn't know how. Yeah. Okay. So the counselors are there to help you develop some goals for yourself and things, and you said sometimes you think they could be doing a little bit more. Yeah, I I think they could be uh, doing a little bit more. But just let me say this to you also: I, I have to tell both sides they're underpaid, understaffed. Okay. Yeah, you know that's everywhere: underpaid and understaffed. Uh, but I think they could have a little bit more influence and involvement and get to know the inmate, you know, uh, fairly better. Yes, I would imagine they probably have a pretty significant caseload. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, which would hinder their ability to really get to know the inmates and what might be appropriate goals for them to set. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but but you got through it. You because you were a little sharper. Um, you were able to understand better about how you could take advantage of the resources that the prison was offering. So, yeah, yeah. That that's correct. And just like I could, and we'll talk about this sometime off camera. I could just tell you throughout those 26 years how people were placed in my path. And it's unbelievable. Uh, staff members, uh, teachers I worked for as teacher's assistants, you know, treated me like their son. Uh, it was amazing. Chaplains who treated me like their son, you know, and just took me up under their wing. Even when I wasn't, you know, on the up and up, they were still loving on me and nurturing me. And it was just throughout my 26 years, Janice, I had that. You had that. Okay. And as you say that, you mentioned working as a teacher's assistant. I have a friend in Albany, Georgia. I lived in Albany for 12 years. I got a friend down there that retired as a public school teacher. And now she works as an educator in the State Department of Corrections. Wow. Mm -hmm. So you were an assistant. Tell me, tell me what that role looks like 
you know, what, what were you doing as a teaching assistant? Uh, I was a teacher's assistant for Miss Menengal. She taught ABE, which is adult basic education. That's pretty much self-explanatory, the basics of education. And I work with inmates, I mean, one-on-one. And, and it's just like where, um, you know, some of the guys wouldn't feel comfortable telling her or going before her, asking her questions. They would do that with me. And so I found myself actually teaching, which I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I was also uh, a teacher's assistant for the GED program. And I think I enjoyed that more than anything because guys who thought that they could not. And I told them, yeah, man, you can if you just listen and pay attention and uh, we'll get that GED. And I, I, I tell a story about that, about one guy. He had taken his test like three or four times and he came into the dormitory. His name is Bernard. I never forget. And I said, what's wrong, man? He said, man, he says, I, I, I failed a GED test again, Mark. I says, listen, man, I said, I'll work with you. But I said, you got to listen to, you know, what I'm telling you, because one of the things a, a lot of guys in prison had, they couldn't get with the language arts. You know, they couldn't get with the grammar thing. I said, you're going to have to forget all this stuff we talk on the yard. And I said, for this period of this GED study, we got to do it like it is in the books. He said, okay, okay, man. Okay. Okay. And I, I joke with him. You, know, you can't be saying what time it is and all that. And I had him busting out laughing, you know, while I'm teaching him, we having a good time. And so Chaplain Pierce, I'll never forget. He gave me time in the chapel to work with this guy. And I worked with him about a month or five weeks, you know, getting prepping him for his GED prepping him. Cause keep in mind, I taught GED. Mm -hmm. And so one day I'm in the dorm, me and some other friends were at the table. Bernard comes in. I see him. He's looking around and he sees me. He runs to me and hugs me. I'm like, oh, man, what's going on? You hugging on me. He said, I got it, Mark. I got my GED. I got it. And uh, that was like, yeah, that was amazing. Man. That's that's awesome. That that's awesome. awesome. Now, did you just volunteer to be a, a teaching assistant? How did you get that? No, no. Um, in your file, Janice, uh, you know, like your IQ is in your file. If you if you graduated from college, that's in your file. Uh, what else is in your file? Uh, or if you did a GED, you're scoring on your G. All of that's in your file. OK, so when I go to this camp, the case managers, I'm, I'm given to a case manager before I even meet him or her. They look at your file. Oh, this guy is we could use him over a canteen job. Uh, we're going to ask him if he wants to work in the school. And that's how that, you know, that happens. Yeah. They suggest things. They suggest things based upon what they see, what they know about you. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And does everybody in prison, are you, you everybody required to have a job in the North Carolina state? Prison? For the most part, if you're not like handicapped or what they call, I think is C grade health. A grade oh. health, of course, is number one. B grade is right in the middle. C grade is when you can't work at all. Uh, okay. If you're not doing a job, you're going to have to be in a program or school. Yeah. Okay. All right. Those are your choices. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about, you mentioned the counseling in terms of programming and thank you for explaining how those goals and things are set. Um, and there's also the other type of counseling uh, that you also experienced in prison. Tell us a little bit about that. That was the counseling that changed my life. That was the counseling I'd run away from. Uh, now, mind you, I had uh, encounters with four or five other psychologists prior to uh, me being at this uh, specific facility. 
And I talk about her in my documentary, Meeting Leslie Quick in a program. I didn't, you know, quite mesh or jive with the the, the uh, previous psychologist. And that's the same thing out here. You may go to two or three psychologists before you find one that you can connect with. Uh, and then when I found out that I could actually connect with Leslie, I still was guarded. You know, I, I still was guarded about my past. My past is not something I, I even dealt with. Uh, I just compartmentalized it. Uh, and then they had a program. It was a, dom a domestic violence program at this uh, facility. And with me becoming involved with that domestic violence program, uh, I gained a relationship with Leslie Quick, who was a psychologist, and she was uh, over that program uh, in tandem with a guy, Joe Marinello. They ran the program. And it was through there that I started to see myself for who I was and what I had done and that I needed help. And I couldn't hoard these secrets anymore. Uh, and I can recall, now I'm, I'm going to share this in my book, but I'm going to just give you a little surface of this. Are you writing a book too? Oh, yeah. My book is being written right now. You didn't know that, James. We got to talk. Yeah, I thought yeah, you knew yeah, that. Yeah. Got, well, and we'll need to bring you back on once you have Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I thought you knew that. Uh -huh. But um, we were in this uh, program. And I'll never forget this, Janice. I, I'm going to get emotional, but just bear with me. Uh, and we were required to watch movies. You know, they had movies with, you know, plots and we'd have to discuss the movie. I'll never forget the Antoine Fisher story came on. Mm -hmm. They showed it, you know, and this is a room of about 20, 25 guys. And you know how they get toward the end and you, you know his anger issues and what where it came from, what it stemmed from, molestation and all of that. And uh, the, the prison psychologist played by Denzel Washington was trying to help him navigate the process. Well, when we got to the end and he found his new family, you know, and he got away, he left all that other stuff behind, you know, and found this newfound family that was embracing him and loving him. People were crying. And so, I mean, even out here, I've watched people, you know, look at a movie and get tears in their eyes. And so I'm tearing up. I'm, I'm in prison. It's dark in there now because we're watching a movie in this room. I'm tearing up because, you know, it's part of that's my story. But more so interesting is when I looked around, it was like almost every guy in there, yeah, was like tearing up, crying, man. I'm like, wow, you know, we're all in this thing together. We, you know, we're all trying to find answers. We're all trying to navigate the system. And that was so powerful. That program was powerful. It, it, it was uh, very um, influential in my life and me getting on the right track. Uh, I went into therapy with Leslie Quick, who was a psychologist, and eventually uh, I began to talk with her and uh, came clean about some things. And then when I came clean, that's when the floodgates came open. And that's when the healing uh, began. It began then uh, with my journey with Leslie Quick. And how far were you into your 26 years at the time that you uh, started? It, it's certain things. It's certain things like you asked me. I can just tell you dates like that. Mm -hmm. It was like I, I'd gotten locked up in 1982. This was like 2003. Wow. I was in my 40s when I started dealing with what had happened in my life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So you had a lot of pent up feelings and anger uh, by that time. Listen, if if I can listen, I, I'm not going to promise you this, but if I get Leslie come down and talk with you and we do this together 
And I'm give her permission to tell you about that room. Oh man. Oh man. It was like, uh, and, uh, uh, a staff member is not supposed to touch an inmate like that. You know what I'm saying? They're not supposed to, you know, but I was so bad off Janice until she came. She didn't hug me. You know, we hug now because we're out here and we're friends, you know, we love each other. I know her husband and, you know, they know me and, um, but you couldn't do that then, but she came over. I'm just crying. I mean, just tears everywhere, put her arm on me, held me like on my shoulder and she had a box of Kleenex. And she just let me get it out. She just let me get it out. And, you know, there are a lot of young men or a lot of men doesn't necessarily have to be young men. But there are a lot of men that uh, they need to have conversations like that. Right. They need to have conversations. So uh, abuse starts when you're four or so, I believe you told four me. Four or five years old. The, the way I remember it is because uh, I remember being, I won't get into specifics of it. Because uh, it's still, uh, I'm still scarred by that. You know, I don't know that I will be fully cured by of, of that, healed of that. I remember the specifics. I remember the dark rooms. I remember what was done. And then I can remember because of what was done to me being like, and what is that where you, you go and you lay down on the uh, the towel? Is it Head Start or whatever? Yeah, probably head start, yeah, probably four or five naps. years, head start kindergarten somewhere mm -hmm. in there. You're going to be taking And that. so because of what was being done to me, it sort of like made me sexually, you know, want to know stuff, you know? And so I can remember, and back then, I'm 59. I don't know how old you are, but I'm 59. And the teachers wore dresses for the most part, you know? And I can remember being on the floor lying on my towel for my nap. But I really wouldn't be napping. I'd be waiting on the teacher to walk by so I could look up under her dress. And uh, and that curiosity only came from what was being done to me at the house. You see what I'm saying? It wasn't like, hell, I was born wanting to know what was up under somebody's dress. Right. Yeah. So abuse starts when you're very small. And it's 35 or 40 years later when you really let this out and really deal with it. And that is by virtue of the fact that the prison system provided mm -hmm. uh, a psychologist that can help you and other inmates get to a point where you could healthily, in a healthy way, release and talk and come to terms. Mm -hmm. Okay. Correct. Because even out here, prior to my incarceration, you know, they'd have these pastors try to talk to me. My mother was very cute, you know, coming up, beautiful woman, you know, so you know how that thing. I think, I think I've seen a picture of her on Facebook, correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and so it was pretty much, she'd already tell the pastors or preachers what, you know, was going on with me. And so whatever she told them, that was law. And so when I would go to them to talk with them, you know, they pretty much had their mind made up. They're trying to impress my mama, you know, and trying to play daddy to me because my mother and father, eventually they were separated. And uh, telling me they're going to take a belt to me. No counseling skills, you know, no, no counseling skills, no idea of what was going on. And, and, and let's be clear now. She's not really telling them what happened to you, right? No, no. She, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, she's well, a respected what she, mother. What, yeah. What is she telling them that makes them think that they need to take a belt to you? Everything on me. He's skipping school. He's doing this. He's stealing everything about me but never about beating them until, you know, they have welts or any of that stuff. The verbal abuse, 
Uh, I think you saw in the um, the documentary I shared with you where I attempted suicide. And the response I got from her when the bill came, don't you ever try that again. Not what's going on with you. Why would you want it? You know what I'm saying? So, no, she didn't. They saw her as upright and perfect because she always gave to the church. She does that now. She gives to the church. Uh, you know, she's faithful. And so, no, they're, they're, they're not going to side against her. No. <laughs> that I just when you said your mother would take you to the pastor and tell yeah. him, you know, what was happening with you. It's One a whole dude different version take a belt to. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's One a whole different day. version of what's happening. It's, it is, she is talking about your acting out as a result of all this internal anger that you have pent up. Okay. Got it. Oh, I got something I'm going to let you listen to. Yeah. yeah okay. Right. okay. Right. So, um, <laughs> Another thing about the prison journey that I, I want to get out, you mentioned the hustling and the drug dealing in prison. Mm -hmm. Recently, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution ran a few stories on some very unsavory things that are happening within the prison system that we pay for, which gets to the heart of local matters and what that's about. We're paying mm -hmm. for this, that there are inmates running all type of criminal enterprises from inside the prison with the assistance and cooperation of prison staff. Yes. Um, How does this happen? Underpaid staff. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just being, you know, straight up, uh, you know, and that's not an excuse. That's not excusing what they do. You know what I'm saying? But I mean, if you paid them, you know, I don't think they'd have to, you know, do an extra for a little 500 here, 600 here, 200 there. Um, but, you know, and you you get that relationship with them. However, you know, whether it's like one on one or I got a sister, you know. Tamika, I want you to meet her in the street. She's going to meet you up here for dinner. Y'all, it, it's various ways, you know, you you nurture that relationship and, you know, put people into place to do things now. In my involvement, when I was at Cattle on Your Farm, I didn't have to do a lot of that. Um, there was a guy, the Greek, uh, he did all of that and just let me know, you know, what was going to happen and what was coming to me or who would be coming to me or this would be coming in. I didn't have to get involved in that part. The Greek handled all of that. Yeah. And how did I meet the Greek? These were guys, uh, a lot of these guys just took a liking to me. Uh, I didn't fit the 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 prototype for the you know the standard I guess inmate or convict. I, I stood out, you know, and so guys trusted me. Uh, they really uh, they put a lot. They, they as far as like my advice, my input, they respected it, and I, they just I I don't know. I <laughs> I, I don't want to look at things spiritual or whatever, but they just were drawn to me for whatever reason. And uh, some good, some, you know, things came bad out of it. And that was the hustling and the, you know, the the involvement with the staff, the, you know, being in officers' pockets, the, the you know, the having sexual relations with female officers, all of that, you know, can't be good because that's a security thing. But, yeah, we did all of that. Yeah. And the, the drug dealing, so basically, are you just – giving direction to folks who are on the street doing drugs. I'm just trying to figure out how the money. Greek handled that. Uh-huh. Greek okay. handled that as far as anything. Now, we're not talking about, now, this thing we're talking about is in prison. We're not talking about running something on the street. Now, right. we did have people who did that from inside the prison, but not our enterprise. 
Greek was in contact with people on the prison and maneuvering things, you know, in the street for officers to be in place for us in the prison system and to get things handled and done. So that's okay. how that was done. Yeah. So who were your buyers, I guess? Oh, other inmates. Other inmates. Mm -hmm. Other inmates, yeah. Other inmates. This was for, like I said, in the prison system. And we flooded, you know, the prison system. Uh, and not only not only with the drugs, but the numbers rackets. You know, we card games, you know, I, yeah. And the inmates, I'm not inmates, I'm sorry. The correctional officers may have been handed a few hundred dollars to smuggle the drugs in. Yeah, I got a story I tell. Uh, <laughs> I had gotten so drunk. I used to drink. You know, I had a drinking habit in prison, and I sort of got <laughs> too drunk. And this was Christmas. Uh, this was like in ninety. I, I transferred from the farm in ninety two. I got there in eighty eight. So this had be, to be between eighty nine, ninety one. And I'd got so drunk, and I, I was walking the hallway, and all the officers that were, you know, had been doing favors for me. I walked around giving them money. <laughs> and I mean, they were accepted. It was like, nobody was like, no, Mark. I mean, that's just how crooked this prison was. I mean, I'm like, hey, man, Merry Christmas. I appreciate you. you know, I'm shaking a hand and putting money in their hand at the same time. And it was like, cool, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you bring back memories. <laughs> I'm up here talking to you. <laughs> this is not what we have in mind when we think about prison. But okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they show you that crazy stuff on TV. Now it's violent. You know, trust me, there's some, but all they show is violence on TV. Right. There's a lot of down to earth times, fun loving times, and you know, the the little hustle stuff times too. But it, it ain't people getting stabbed every five minutes. And you know, like they be showing on nah, you know, and there's there's prisons out of state. I'm sure they have their share of violence, but yeah, it's it's not like they portray on TV. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks for sharing that with me too, yeah. to clarify that. So you finally get out. You said you were eligible for parole after 20 years. Yeah. So I was eligible after for parole. At the 26. Yeah. I was eligible for parole in 2002, but I kept getting turned down, kept getting turned down. And so, uh, was able it to like an annual petition you have to file to get mm -hmm. out. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, uh, hired an attorney uh, who at one time was interim parole chairman. And he had some pool, he had some connection, but he told me there were two people on the parole commission who were against my being released. And he told me, he says, uh, Mark, he says, um, they're set to retire next year. And when they retire, he says, I'm gonna get you, I'm gonna get you some help. And so sure enough, they retired. This was like around 2005, 2006. And as soon as they retired, he was able to get me what they call a MAP contract. And that's a mutual agreement parole plan, which sets out objectives for the inmate, whether it's like over the next two years or, or three years or four years, or it could be 12 months. But my MAP contract was for two years. So I got a MAP contract in 2006, and that started me off to being promoted to minimum custody. Now, keep in mind for 24 years, I had been in close custody and medium custody facilities. And I'd also been to um, the maximum custody facility, but not housed there just for medical reasons or overnight. Raleigh Central Prison, where they do the executions, I'd been there. That's maximum security. But I'd never been like, um, you know, housed there permanently or for extended or period of time. Okay. Okay. So now after having been in, you know, medium custody and close custody up under the gun, you know, you, you got guns on your gun towers. 
I'm in minimum custody now. And uh, this is 2006. And they're getting ready to, you know, prepare me for release into society. Uh, and so the guy says, well, Mark, you can go outside the gate and, uh, you know, you pick up trash or do whatever you want to out there, you know. And keep in mind, Janice, I hadn't been outside the gate unless there was a gun on me. I, I was in handcuffs or shackles. So something that may not seem like a big deal to listeners, that was a hell of a big deal for me. You know, I'm outside. And, you know, nobody has a gun on me. You know, I've been locked up for 24 years. And so that was like my first little taste of freedom. But then they put me in what they call the community volunteer program, where volunteers from the community can come in, take you out to church, take you into their homes, take you shopping and that type thing. And that's how I sort of got initiated back into coming into society. Now, keep in mind, they didn't have a Walmart when I got locked up in 82. So uh, now I'm out in the Walmarts. I'm, I'm, I'm out like in the McDonald's and stuff. And they had McDonald's and all of that, but you didn't serve yourself. Right. You know, back when I come to prison, you go in and they serve you. You didn't go up into a drink machine. And so my community volunteer sponsor, he took me like to a McDonald's or Burger King. And I'm just sitting at the table. And uh, his name is Ben Davis, man. I love him. And uh, he's now deceased. And uh, he says, Mark, what the hell are you waiting? Why are you sitting down there? What's going on, man? He says, you got to get up and go get your own drink. And I didn't know that. You see what I'm saying? I didn't know that I could get up. World, yeah. I didn't know that I could get up and go over to this drink machine, you know. And so those are things I, you know, I had to learn when I came home. You know how you pull the blinds and, the, you know, to let them back down, you got to pull the string to the side. See, those are things I had to learn all over, you know. So it was sort of like a culture shock. Me going into prison was a culture shock, but me coming back out was more so a culture shock. Uh, Ronald Reagan was president when I went in, when I came out, Barack Obama had just been elected. So that's the big difference. Yeah. 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 So this is going to sound odd for me to say, but I'm going to say it anywhere. It's part of statement, part question. You went into the prison system as a teenager um, you came out as a grown man and seems like you actually came out better than you were when you went in. Is that fair? That That's fair to say. Uh, when I decided to uh, let go of the family secrets and to seek help, because see that denial is something, man, that, that denial is that you don't have a problem or, or just the fear of, I can't, or the shame that I can't talk about this, you know, because now what goes on in his house stays in his house was like instilled in me from a baby up. You know what I mean? And so some things I, I may could have talked about, but that's in my head. What goes on in his house? I don't know what I can talk about, what I can't talk about, you know? And so, yeah, that was uh, a big decision for me. I said, man, I got to release this stuff. I, I If I want help, I want to get better. And I say that to anybody, whether you're dealing with, you know, sexual abuse, uh, uh, physical abuse, verbal abuse, uh, you know, any drugs, any, you've got to want it bad enough. You, you've got to want it bad. Enough. I can want it for you. Your mama can want it for you. But if you don't want it for yourself or bad enough for yourself, nothing's going to happen. And I wanted it bad enough for myself. Do you think that's the difference between you and other inmates that we uh, going back 
you know, high recidivism rates, they go back time and time again, they don't come out better on the other side. Do you think that's really the difference? Yeah. And, and having served a life sentence, you see that Janice, I mean, guys I was friends with, you know, they, they get out, come back. And every time they come out, they'd have a different story. You know, Mark almost was there and I was this and I was that. And, uh, but they had not addressed the underlying issues, you know, your willpower ain't nothing up against drugs. You know, <laughs> your willpower ain't nothing up against when you've been, you know, sexually molested for, I don't know how long, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you need help. You need counseling, you need therapy, you know, mm -hmm. and a lot of them, like I said, they just don't know how to go about getting it uh, mm -hmm. in prison. They know it's available out, you know, in the society. I don't know that they know it's available. Now they know about drug treatment and all of that. But a lot of the other things, and especially we as black men, uh, we think we can handle it. We think okay. we can shoulder it. Uh, but we ain't built to internalize that stuff and, and just let stuff build up on it and build. That's why you have these explosions. That's why you have these. Janice, when I see, and, and I, I'm going to talk about two different scenarios. I can talk about school shootings. When I see something like that, I wonder what the underlying issues are. But when I see these men lose it over nothing in fits of rage and anger, especially those black men mm -hmm. and, you know, killing our mates, I'm saying, I wonder, you know, I wonder what was going on that this guy didn't get addressed. He didn't become this angry just overnight, you know, and it's a lot of things that we as black men have got to own up to and say yeah, it's a problematic area for us. And man, we got to seek help and not be shamed of it. And I, I can see the. Uh, and I'm not an expert. It's just that I've lived it so long and been around it. I can look at pastors, look at some of their behavior. And I say, yeah, he got major issues. Now, I can look at some of my leaders because I've lived it, Janice. That's it. Not because I'm this, or I consider myself that, but I just recognize it because I've lived through it. Okay. So to those people, and I, I love that point. <clears throat> I, I absolutely love that point um, that, you know, I, I say that in a management context, when I'm either managing organizations or dealing with my clients or whatever, whatever, you can't fix a problem until you come to terms with the fact that you have it. That's right. So uh, that is basically what you were willing to do for yourself is come to terms with the fact that there were problems here that had to be addressed and you were willing to do whatever it took to be to address those things. Um, for those people who will look at the prison system and um, show where we're spending money on education, we're spending money on psychologists, we're spending money on counselors and programs and all these things. And they would ask whether those things are really necessary. What do you say to those people? Uh, they are very necessary because if the inmate takes advantage of those programs, of those counseling programs, of the, the, the educational programs, he's going to return to you a lot better than when he went in. And I would think that's how you would want a person to return to you a, a, a lot better than when they first had, you know, had gone in. They were life changing for me. You know, Leslie Quick, my encounter with her, my encounter with the STOP program, the program uh, over which she was uh, the uh, instructor were life changing for me. Uh, my education, I'll put my education and listen, uh, I, I graduated the two-year program, and when I was going through the four-year program, Pell Grant was Pell Grant. The Pell Grant funding was stopped for people convicted of first-degree murder. That was my crime, mm -hmm. 
and some other crimes, but it fit me on the first degree murder. So I was like 20 hours shy of my bachelor's degree from Shaw University in Raleigh, North Carolina. The instructors came in. This wasn't no online stuff, Janice. Right, because this is before the online stuff started, no, right? But I'm glad because <laughs> I, I, I don't want to talk about folks with online degrees, but I will say that one-on-one -on -one and mm -hmm. being able to go to that instructor and ask him, you know, mm -hmm. man, what's going on here? I need help with this. And I need, it, it's like, yeah, it, it's irreplaceable to me. You know, I know people say virtually this, but just to have, and I, I'm a media man, you know, I'm a tech person, mm -hmm. but just to have that one-on-one -on -one and that instructor, you know, you can go up to his desk or, or he can come over to where you're at. And then you're, you know, when you go back to the dormitory, you're interacting with your fellow inmates. You know, y'all have projects that you're working on. It's it's awesome. It, the, the experience, that's an experience I'll never forget. And I put my education uh, up against anybody's out here. You know, I'm, I'm not saying I'm a doctor. I'm not saying anything like that, but I'm just saying along those same lines, my, my, my business, uh, my, my uh, degrees in business with a concentration in management, um, Anybody with a degree out here in business management or whatever, I, I I could hold my own beside them because of my education that I got while incarcerated. And it was a good education. Excellent. So the professors, you mentioned something I just never thought about. So Shaw University professors, the same professors that were teaching others, other students were coming into the prison. Uh, Dr. And Bruce Winston, I can call the names. Yeah. And they were awesome, Janice. I mean, and they loved it. They loved it. Dr. Celine. He was like from uh, he was from Iran or one of the countries. Oh man, awesome doctors! Yeah, we had access to these guys. Yeah, so you essentially were getting the same education that yeah. the, uh, the, some twenty year old who was a student yeah. that Saul was yeah. getting. Mm -hmm. And um, you mentioned about the Pell Grants. So basically, the prison system was using federal funds to pay mm -hmm. for yeah. your education through Shaw, mm -hmm. uh, but you got cut off by virtue of the type of crime that you had been convicted mm -hmm. of. Yeah. Okay. And and what I always tell people though, I what uh, I used to hear the old people say, "Get all you can and can all you can get." And I guess I can all I could get. So uh, what I got, nobody can take away from me. And that came through my prison education through Central Carolina. Uh, uh, college program and then the Shaw University college program. Yeah. Okay. Cool beans. So how healthy do you feel today? You are a long ways removed from 1982. Mm -hmm. So how healthy? Do you feel healthy? Do you feel whole? What what is Mark feeling? Physically, today? I feel great. Um physically I feel wonderfully. Uh I still struggle with some things. There, you know, People want you to act as if, you know, oh, you went to church, they laid hands on you and everything just went away. That's a lie. That's that's like on Maury Povich. That's a lie. The lie detector test determined. That was a lie, man. I still struggle, but I have a village. I have a, when I came out with my documentary, I surrounded myself with a group of individuals I love and trust and they love and trust me. I talk to them about anything, Janice, uh, white, black, male, female. And it's a, it's a chat group we have on Facebook. Uh, it's about 20, 22 people, something like that. And they helped me. I have counselors, you know, prior to my incident happening, I didn't take advantage of resources that were available to me. But now I have, you know, uh, Dr. Michael Perry, his wife, I have uh, Dr. Glover, you know, I have resources. And so I know that I'm not at this alone and they understand that I'm still healing. Um, even in relationships, I always tell somebody when they want to become involved with me, 
you know, this is my past and this is what I, I've been through. I don't want to blindside anybody because I, I just, I don't want to bring somebody into, you know, what's going on in me or what's right. going on with me, you know, that may be healthy or unhealthy for them. And so when, you know, I just tell people, just know what you're signing up for, because sometimes I feel like, and I'll share this with you and you'll hear women say this, but you won't hear men say this. Sometimes I feel like I want to be bothered. Sometimes I feel like I want to be touched. Sometimes I feel like I don't want to be touched. I don't want you hugging on me. You see, and so those are some of the things that I still struggle with because of what was done to me against my will. And like, I, yeah, women talk about it, but as a man, I'm going to tell you, I go through that. You know, just sometimes, just I don't want you coming up on me, hugging and kissing all over, you know. And so are you willing to deal with that before you become a part of my life? You know. So, yeah. All right. Awesome. Uh, is there anything else that you want to share with the Local Matters family before we close this interview out? Nothing other than I, I, I've really enjoyed this. I've enjoyed the platform that you've, you know, you've given me. And I, I think we're going to do some more. <laughs> I think it's going to be necessary that you and I hook up again and do some more, but I, I'm just so thankful that you've given me a voice uh, and, and I'm so grateful for this platform, Janice. Thank you so much. Thank you for being willing to share your story. Uh, you've been through an awful lot. Um, and again, you know, the purpose of Local Matters at the heart of it, we discuss a lot of community related topics and things, but at the heart of it, we want folks to understand how their tax dollars are being used and understand issues so that when they get ready to vote for folks, you know, they can start asking questions of candidates for state representative. Well, how do you feel about the counseling resources that are offered in the prison? Oh, okay. You know, that, that's the that's the tie in here is they they know what it takes now by virtue of your conversation. They know a little bit more about what it takes to create a healthier individual so that he or she is less inclined to get back into the system once they get out. And I, I just want people to understand all of that so that they can ask intelligent questions of folks who are running for office or folks who are currently in office about what, what services are being provided and what's being done. Okay. I like that. That's awesome. Thank you so, so much um, for, again, just being so revealing, offering so much of yourself. We wish you the best on your journey as you continue. Hopefully, you've got a lot more years to share and to help others uh, who have been where you are. Thank you so much. I close with my favorite Bible verse, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. This show is designed to contribute to each of those, giving you the power that comes with knowledge, demonstrating love for your local community, and offering you wisdom for decision making so that you possess a sound mind when it comes to these topics. Please tune in next Wednesday at 1.30 p.m. or Thursday at 7 p.m. here on 103.7 FM or 1600 AM. Or please go to SoundCloud, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts at any time because local matters. <laughs>